On this special episode of FieldLink, we invite you to sit back and crack an ice-cold one during this podcast as we discuss the process of growing the key ingredients to make beer. We'll delve into the science, culture, history, and innovation that has shaped this timeless beverage as we visit with some of the people that make this frosty mug delight a reality on this special FieldLink episode of Beer, Barley, and Hops. And welcome back to FieldLink. I'm your host, Bill Smith, and joining us today from North Dakota is Ron Kessel. Ron, uh, tell us a little bit about you and uh, where's home? Well, good morning, Bill. It's great to be here with you today. So I grew up in southwest North Dakota. We're about 40 miles from the Montana border and 70 from the South Dakota border, right in that southwest corner of the state. Grew up on a dryland farm, had cattle and, and hogs, and so grew up with cereal grains. And, and at that time, it was half fallow, half farming. And uh, then since then, the market's evolved and changed, and now we're continuous crop. And so Kind of, in a, we're in a dryland climate, and uh, not not a lot of rain out where we are, so we have to really manage for for water. And uh, we're about a 12 to 16 inch rainfall annual precip. So if we can get that 16 inch, we can raise some pretty good crops with the production practices we're doing now. And, and Ron, that's 16 inches a year of of moisture, correct? That is correct. Yes, that's that's including the snow and everything else that we get. Uh, and don't forget the wind, right? It uh, the wind doesn't blow there, does it, Ron? No, no, yeah. <laughs> Some days I wish it didn't, uh, but yeah, the wind can be a challenge in in this environment here. Well, Ron, you talk a little bit about uh, you're definitely a dry land predominantly uh, in your particular market, uh, and and today we're talking about barley. Tell us a little bit about some of the barley production in your geography and some of the, you farm yourself and your family does, but uh, you also work for Helena and uh, you have a lot of customers that raise barley. Tell us a little bit about barley production in southwest part of North Dakota. So when I was a kid, barley was mainly raised for livestock feed and it was something that was, it was put in the ground. It was, it wasn't really managed so to speak i mean they just did their standard practices on it and they got what they got out of it and uh at one point north dakota was the largest barley raising state in the in the nation i don't believe that is the case anymore because barley acres kind of went away and the malt thing was a big piece out east but as they started having production issues in the east malt barley production started to shift to the west and in these more drier arid climates for quality reasons so what barley was raised here was a livestock feed. And now we're raising barley for malt and working on trying to raise quality malt. And so it's changed how we're, how we're managing it. We're, we're taking it to a whole nother level. And with that, we're, we're seeing some pretty good increases on yields too. Yeah, so definitely the crop in, in your region has evolved over time from being that basic feed stock now more of a higher value product due to consumption, correct? Uh, I mean, is the bulk of your... Barley being gone, uh, shipped to the uh, the brewery industry or, or some other feed sources? Most of what we're doing now is is raised for the malt, and it's going into the malt industry. Uh, quite a bit of the contracts around here are, are Anheuser-Busch contracts. They ship them to eastern North Dakota. they got a malt plant in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota. There is some craft brew stuff that's done here, too. we got a, got a customer that's in the craft brew industry, and he raises some malt for that specific market. 
but the big acres that we work with on our farm and on our customers' farms is going into the uh, general beer market. Yeah, that's uh, more like the big brands, I assume, like in your area, Anheuser-Busch and other markets might be a, a Coors brand or something along that line, correct? That's correct, yep. So uh, along with, you know, you talk a little bit about the evolution of barley in your country. You know, what are some, I guess, uh, practical things that you have done as a grower and and, and as a Helena representative to help eh, increase the yield and performance of barley in your market? We've incorporated a a strong nutritional package into into our production practices on barley. And I feel if we have good, strong nutrition, just like ourselves, if we take care of ourselves and 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 provide that nutrition we can fight off a lot of things throughout the growing season and so we do the same thing with our barley we, we start out with looking at our soil samples run a high ground report on that field so we got good data to, to know where to put this what we're, we're we're missing are we missing zinc are we missing copper and then uh, what's our potassium levels? Trying to look at it from a base and give this crop the best opportunity from the get-go. We seed it early in the spring. It's one of the first things we put in the ground because we want to try and beat the heat. Usually in July and August, we get a lot of heat here and, no, and very limited amount of water. So if we can get it in early, we can get it out of the ground and it grows fast. Barley grows really fast. You got to stay on top of it. And what I've seen since we've stepped up the nutrition program on it, it seems to grow faster to me. So we start out and just make sure we got our micros in place and and the right starter packages. We're incorporating some nutrient enhancement products in there like research to get that nutrition built into that plant strong and early. So we set it off with a maximum opportunity on yield. Yeah. And to your point, you know, some of the things that you talked about, even using things like high ground soil testing and, and incorporating nutritional products, uh, you referenced research and others, that didn't happen 15, 20 years ago, correct? No, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, we were mainly just a, a nitrogen phosphorus market. Sulfur was, was being used on the canola acre, but we're realizing that this barley crop needs balanced nutrition. So we're looking at the sulfur, the potassium, and we manage nitrogen. We know it's important, but we also are trying to manage for quality and low protein. If you have too high a protein in barley, that takes away from the favorable characteristics that the brewers like. And so we're trying to keep it under 13 and a half protein. Okay. And so we're not pushing a lot of nitrogen on this thing, but we're trying to push the other, other nutrition to make sure it's balanced so that we can maximize that yield. And with that, sometimes you get weather that you want to you want to give it a little extra nitrogen, and we use some tools there that Helena offers to to uh, uh, address that. Yeah, bump it when it needs a little bump, but uh, you bring up a great point. You're managing protein levels that are a little bit unique. You you say less than thirteen percent, correct? Thirteen and a half. Thirteen yeah. and a half is what the brewers want. And then historically, if you're raising that for livestock, you're probably trying to bump that up a little bit to get a little more protein out there from a feed source standpoint, but. We're really not raising feed in this case. No, that's a very good point, too. From a change in evolution in barley, it used to be they would they were trying to push protein. Mm-hmm. And and now it's it's a different uh, mindset of we can't push this nitrogen on this crop. 
like we used to do. So, so Ron, uh, you know, for some of our listeners that are not familiar with barley, you referenced that you guys get out really early in spring, and it's one of the first things you plant. Uh, give us a frame of reference in North Dakota. When, what time of year of, of spring are you planting? Or is it May? Is it uh, July or June, rather? Or uh, is it in April? You know, if the weather's right, we can get going in April. Okay. And and that's that's ideal if, if it works out. This year, we were later. It was later April, beginning of May before a lot of this was planted just we had some we had a lot of snow last winter and it took a while for that to warm up and and get off and and the spring went fast i mean we we put this crop in the ground probably the fastest i've ever seen in my 30 years of being in this in this industry we like to get get going i mean the snow there's sometimes you're farming around snow banks coming out of trees and different things and you, you have to come back and pick those areas up later well give our listeners you know kind of a, a size and scope of a typical barley field in your market what type of planter are you guys using uh and how many acres can you basically cover in a day in your market a lot of our growers are running uh what we call an air seeder it's a it's a got an air cart behind it and there are three compartments some four We'll do a lot of one-pass seeding towards either a hole opener or a disc opener, and and so we'll come in and do a glyphosate or a Roundup application with a burn down ahead of time. Take care of those weeds if there's anything out there early, and then we just we seed it all in one pass. Put the nutrition down and everything if we can. And so seeders are are anywhere from 40 to 70 foot, and so in a day we can put a lot of acres in. Uh, they'll seed about five mile an hour is what they'll seed at. Temperature-wise in the soil, it's cool soils. I mean, we're talking oh, high 30s, low 40s. We'll start we'll start planting that barley crop in that that cool of soil. So you're getting out there pretty darn early, and that one pass system with those air seeders really allows you know for some efficiency factors in terms of fuel and energy and labor for that matter. Yeah, it it does, and so I mean we'll. Depending upon the size of the grower and where they're at, it's you know they can seed with with one machine 300 350 acres a day. It just depends on uh, how big the fields are, and a lot of our fields are 160. We've got some growers, you know, they're seeding 640 acres. That's the size of the fields. And I think that's great to share that, uh, you know, visualizing that for some of our, our, our listeners is like huge. That's 600 some acres in some of those fields. That's a pretty big uh, open area, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's vast open spaces out here and very few trees. Um, it's one of the things I struggle with when I leave North Dakota. If I get into an area where there's trees, like I was in Florida this winter, and I'm like, well, I, I don't like all these trees around me. <laughs> it was just a little too closed in for me. So, yeah, we're, we're wide open. I understand you can get a little claustrophobic. I know when I moved from Nebraska down to Tennessee, trees everywhere. And it's, uh, it's a different, can't see the tornadoes coming. <laughs> Ron, tell us a little bit about harvest time, you know, through the growing cycle for barley. When do you all get ready to harvest that particular crop? So we're full swing into harvest on barley right now. We've got uh, some growers that are working on theirs. My brother and I are working on ours. We started yesterday. And uh, that's typical. Barley will, will come off early compared to spring wheat. Okay, so early August is kind of what you're looking at for that harvest time? Late July, early August. If we're in, you know, in April, we'll be we'll be combining in July, late July. Okay, and what kind of yields are you looking at uh, in your market, Ron? Um, the crop looks really good this year and we had a good crop last year too. And so on averages, you know, 75 to a hundred 
you know, this year there's some stuff that's pushing on some fields, averaging good good soils, good quality, good management. There's some 120 bushel stuff out there on dry land. Now we had a little more than 16 inches of rain on it. That that helped, but beat your average rainfall this year is what you're saying. We did in in certain fields, yes. Now, like on our farm, we're not running quite that good. We got a little different soils, not quite as productive. He was hitting yields anywhere from 50 to 110, 120 in spots. I think the average on the field was 75. You know, in, in a year like this, uh, for a bar, the average barley grower, uh, you know, you referenced you, in some areas you were a little above your rainfall. Did you have some fungal issues? Did you have any issues with any pathogens out there? We did, and, and barley, because quality is so important on it, we want to manage for the dawn levels and the fusarium head blight in it so we will we will tend to put a premium fungicide package on barley to manage that so there's good quality for this for the maltsters to use and and with that we you know there there was some pressure out there this year and after we just went through this rainfall event we had like anywhere from an inch and a half to five inches of rain in some areas you could see the fields that were treated almost all of our barley fields are treated anymore just because of the value of that crop and we're trying to maximize opportunity. But there was some spring wheat fields that, that weren't treated and there was splits. And after the rain, you could see to the line what was treated and what wasn't, so. With your team, are you guys scouting for uh, fungus uh, through the uh, inspects program? Or is this just a kind of a planned program for a lot of uh, barley growers? It's a combination of both, Bill. We'll go into having a plan of, here's our play that we're gonna run with but we're going to scout throughout that season and make adjustments as the weather, as we see fit based on weather. And that's when we'll start doing some, you know, foliar feed applications like ENC Flex early on with herbicide timing or that fungicide application, we'll put it in there. We're doing, we're, we're doing more work with uh, K-Leaf Versa, realizing the importance of, of potassium and grain fill as that, that crop's pushing. So when we get the right weather, we can go in and top that nutritional program off to maximize yield opportunity. Ron, are you guys uh, applying a lot of those acres through the air or uh, through a ground rig? A combination of both. The early stuff is usually all ground rig. And then as we do the fungicide applications, some of that's done with ground rig, some of it's done with airplane. It it just depends on uh, weather conditions, how how wet the fields might be at that time, and then also workload. You know, the the airplane can get across some acres pretty quick, so we can get some timeliness. Ron, we talked a little about the evolution of the crop barley and and kind of the shift in the market going from a feed source to more of a higher value product for a lot of the malters and the brewery industry. What are some of the things that they're, I guess, demanding? You referenced earlier on different levels of protein, not as much. What are some other, I guess, uh, requests that the brewers are asking for from you as a producer? They like a nice plump kernel. They're, they're, when they're, when, what they're doing when they, when they malt this product is that they actually they steep it or soak it in water and cause it to grow, and they sprout it. And when the sprouting process happens, it takes those starches and changes them to sugars, and then they can use that for their, their brewery. And uh, the more starch you can get in it, the better the plump, the better quality. And I'm, I'm guessing it also leads to higher yields of finished product. And so plumpness is important, the size, test weight of that kernel, and then uh, the, you know, have low, low vomitoxin, low dawn levels, which is a mycotoxin that creates issues in the brewing process. 
Wow. And it's becoming much more of a science. And going back to, as you said, when you were younger, you just throw it in the ground and plant it and harvest it. And now we're really getting pretty specific as far as, you know, protein levels and, and, and quality. Are you getting paid a little differently than you may have 20 years ago at the elevator for these crops? There is a significant difference in the pricing on them compared to what it used to be. Being it was a feedstock, you know, the value in that feed market wasn't near as good as it is when you start going into human consumption. And uh, we're fortunate in this part of the world, we do a lot of different specialty crops. And and I would almost look at this malt industry for our market as a specialty crop because not everybody does it. It's, It's just certain guys that want to manage things a little bit different and diversify their portfolios. So when we get into the food stock things, we do get a premium for that. We'll raise some green peas out here and we'll do some yellow peas and, and chickpeas. A lot of diversity. At one time, my brother and I, one year, we raised like nine different crops. Wow. Too much. It was too much for us. We found out that year, but we just have that amount of diversity and flexibility here. And so what it does give us is the ability to raise these higher value crops. Where years ago, livestock was on every farm. We don't see that so much anymore. Most of the growers we're working with don't have any livestock. And if they do have livestock, it, it might be beef cow operation. Where a lot of these places, they were feeding barley to hogs. And that market's kind of all just went away now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as far as working with different brewers you referenced in Heiser Bush. Do you have contracts with uh, these brewers or is it uh, kind of a free-for-all? No, it's a it's a contracting process. And so they'll they'll come out with prices and they give you different pricing options on how you want to do that. And so it's contracted, the specs of the contract are laid out, you know, there's delivery periods in that uh, contract. So like the barley we're combining now, it, it will go in the bin and we will store it and then it'll be delivered throughout the winter. And in fact, there was some barley we just finished delivering here from last year's crop. So the bin got cleaned out and basically filled back up with this year's crop. And so there will be sometimes there's some harvest delivery. It just depends. They want to see what the quality is. And I mentioned earlier we had this rainfall event that went through. There's a lot of concerns with the barley crop this year that they're sprout. Okay. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about sprout. That's a term that a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with. Can you explain what sprout references or means uh, in the barley industry? So what can happen with a cereal grain, it can happen with a lot of different grains, but a cereal grain is if we, we get these rainfall events that it stays wet for three, four days and we're warm out and the kernel will hold enough moisture that it'll actually go through the process of germinating and putting a start the a tail and what that does is is when it does dry back out sometimes the the germ is completely dead and there's other times it just started the process just enough that to reinitiate that process it makes it more difficult to get that malt going so we see with these bigger rainfall events that it it takes away from that quality because of that germination that happens in the head. It's a tough thing to manage. You can't really manage the rainfall, uh, especially in Western North Dakota when it comes. It's a blessing and can be a curse is what it sounds like from a quality standpoint. Yes, it can be. And that's why the, the industry moved from the drier or the wetter environments further West because of that concern. We're still on the edge where we can catch it with 
with the right weather event. It's not very often it does. Last time I seen it happen was in 2014. We had spring wheat that had sprouted in the heads. We, we got lucky that year. We had all our barley off before that rainfall event moved in. And so we had good quality barley to sell that year. Where, where do you see the industry going, Ron, as it relates to barley and, and I guess the brewery industry from your perspective as a grower? I hope it continues to grow. You know, there's been a big change or shift from what I understand from the major brands to the craft brew industry. And so I, I don't see the I don't see it going away. I do think that we're going to get to where there's always going to be acres of malt barley raised and it's going to be not every grower is going to want to do it. Because I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a specialty thing. You got to have separate storage, and it, it, there's a little more management that goes with it. So I think there's always going to be that consumer demand there, though. Sure. People like their beer. They do. And usually when the uh, general economy is down, uh, alcohol and consumption goes up. Uh, so it looks like, based on the state of the economy right now, you might be safe for a while. I'd be okay with me. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> Ron, you know, you reference specialty crops and, you know, you think about it, uh, the evolution of barley. And we talk about the, I guess, constraints and some of the policies, if you will, some of the big brewery manufacturers wanting certain protein levels and that sort of thing. Ron, do you foresee or is it already starting to happen to track traceability and some of those things? Are you hearing some chatter about, in your case, maybe in Hazard Bush asking about sustainability tracing, that sort of thing? Has that become a thing yet or do you foresee it happening? It's being talked about in the industry and uh, there is some tools out there they have already. As a consumer and as a grower of these products, I mean, I can see the value in it. I can see where people are going to want to know that. And so we're looking at it on our farm. It's it's one of the things that I've had a real interest in of being able to look at what is our sustainability? How much, what is our carbon footprint on producing this grain? And, and are we doing the right thing? You know, I want future generations. We're the third generation on this farm, and I want future generations to be here to be able to work off the foundation that was built for us 100 years ago and uh, so sustainability is important it's being talked about in the industry now what will that look like in the future I don't know it, there's a lot of gray area when you start talking about what people want or what they what they think is sustainable yeah no I, I, I agree with you I think it's a bigger certainly a lot of light on it right now but also a lot of questions and understanding and a lot of learning ahead of us, I think. But uh, I don't think it's going away. Uh, I think the consumers are certainly wanting to learn more. And, you know, industry has to step up, and they are in many cases. So we've got a long way to go. But uh, it's interesting to hear from growers like yourself what kind of questions are being asked by these food companies predominantly. Yes. It's it's going to be more than just – it's going to start – I think it's going to start in the uh, – Specialty markets mm -hmm. is where it's going to start, but I think it's eventually going to lead into the major commodities too with time. A lot to learn there for sure, and a lot of uh, a lot of energy around that topic right now. Well, Ron, I want to thank you for joining us today on this episode of uh, FieldLink, uh, as we learn a lot about barley and the contribution that barley brings and malting uh, to the brewery industry and uh, and to all of our agriculture. Well, thank you, Bill. It was enjoyable time to be here and get to share with you some of our stories and what we're trying to do here in southwest north dakota thanks for joining us on field link ron you're welcome
Now joining us here on FieldLink to learn a little bit more about hops is Patrick Kingston. Patrick's a sales representative for Helena from Oregon. Patrick, welcome to FieldLink. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Patrick, uh, you know, you have a really unique opportunity and you, you obviously work in Oregon. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your geography that you work in and some of the crops that you deal with. And then we'll spend a little more time talking about hops. Yeah. So I, I work in the, and live and work in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is the river Valley, just directly South of Portland. Uh, we're in the Western part of the state, West of the Cascade mountains. So that means we get a lot of rain. Uh, we typically get, you know, 40 inches of rain here in the Valley on an annual basis. But the unique thing is we have a Mediterranean climate so that summer times usually are pretty dry and that provides opportunity to grow a lot of different interesting crops that maybe aren't grown elsewhere. So one of the biggest crops here in Oregon is grass seed. So for tall fescue, fine fescue, perennial ryegrass for lawns primarily, growers are growing those plants for seed production. Then I'd say another thing Oregon's really well known for are berries, both blueberries and blackberries, some strawberries as well. And I specifically work with hazelnuts. That's another big crop. Oregon grows like 99% of the nation's hazelnuts. And then Christmas trees are another big industry here in Oregon. And then probably, I mean, there's dozens of other small, funky crops, seed crops they grow here. And then the one we're going to talk about today is, uh, is hops. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about hops. Certainly, you do have a wide range of crops, and that's that's a big challenge to keep up with that variety, but you are well known for your hop production, uh, which really leads to creating more beer, and that's what the, this podcast is all about today. But uh, let's talk a little bit about hops. You know, a lot of our listeners, they probably smelt and had the aroma of hops in some of the brews of choice over the years, but tell us a little bit about the process of growing hops, that little cone yeah, so it's it's a pretty unique plant. Uh, it's the one of the only other plants in the same family as the cannabis family. So they're actually that strong aroma maybe elicits uh, certain memories for some folks, but it's a unique plant. The hop itself is a herbaceous perennial. So each year in the spring, the roots will send up shoots and we'll uh, let those grow up, eventually train them onto some string, and then have them grow up to uh, the top of an 18-foot trellis. And by July, they're in flower. And the other unique thing is that all the hops we grow are female. There are no males. So they flower, they produce this cone, which is the fruiting body, but there's no seeds in it because there are no males with pollen. And that's the piece we're after. That's the part with all the the really interesting aromas and bittering characters, uh, oils, aromatics. And to get there is takes quite a bit of labor. Uh, it's uh, pretty involved. There's you got to send crews through on towers to tie strings from the top of the 18-foot trellis down to the bottom. Then once the plants get up to the wires, to the strings, you have to then make sure you only have one or two little Vines are called, B-I-N-E-S, little vines, essentially, that wrap up only one or two per string. And then, you know, got to keep up with disease management, spraying fungicides throughout the season, some insecticides, and then come harvest time, once they're ready to to be picked, 
you go through, cut the base off at the bottom. So you got a hanging string full of the plant and cones. And then you have a machine that cuts it right at the top of the wire. So now you have an 18 foot long section of hop vines. You then bring them over to your hop picker. So each grower usually has their own hop picker, which is a machine that you send in this long 18 foot section and it through a series of belts and different attachments essentially strips off all those little cones, sorts out all the leaves and other matter that you're not interested in, blows that out. And then those cones get funneled into large kilns that are about 20 by 20 feet. And you usually fill them about three feet high and blow hot air through that for, oh, depending on the variety, anywhere from six to 10 hours until they've dried down to the right moisture content. Then they take them out of the kiln, throw them onto the floor to cool, and then funnel them into what's called a hop baler, where they compress it into these, uh, with a lot of hydraulic pressure, into these 200-pound bales. And that is what the hop grower sends to the hop dealer, and where they store that in their freezers until the brewery asks for some hops or the distributor decides to mill those further and, and process them further into different hop products. But that's kind of the general overview. So definitely from listening to you describe that, Patrick, a lot of, a lot of hands-on, I guess, care for these particular, uh, this crop. Yeah, it's very much a specialty crop. It's classified here at Oregon State as like a field crop, but the reality is the labor involved is so much more that it should really be thought of as a specialty crop. And yeah, you do need a lot of hand labor um, and that's always a challenge these days with securing the labor you need. Um, and when they're picking, they're going, usually they're running their kilns, you know, they're running their picking crews 24 hours a day. So it's that typically in August and September is when they're picking hops here in Oregon. And it's a pretty busy time of year. Sure, sure is. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit, you know, just for listeners that are not familiar with hops, on average, you know, what would be considered a big farm for hops growers? Are we talking a few acres? Are we talking, you know, 50 acres, 100 acres? Kind of ground truth us a little bit. Yeah. In Oregon, at least, most hop, they kind of classify them first as like a yard, which is like the trellis uh, infrastructure. And those range typically from anywhere from 10 to 40, 50 acre trellises. And then a grower usually has multiple yards. And I'd say maybe in Oregon, an average grower has anywhere from, you know, 150 to 300 acres of hops. And there are a couple growers here in Oregon, or one grower in particular that has a couple thousand, but I'd say the average producer is somewhere in the 300 acre range. So when we're talking about growing hops, uh, you mentioned some of the average yards around that 40 acre range or so. Of the hops produced there, of the volume anyhow, uh, Patrick, give us an idea of what kind of, I guess, production comes out of that or how many, I don't know, bales. You mentioned 200-pound bales roughly. Yeah. So it, it totally is dependent on variety as well as year. But I'd say if you were just to throw around the number 10 bales per acre, that's 2,000 pounds of dried hops per acre. and to give you a sense of how much hops go into a beer, I used to be a, a home brewer, and when I would make, say, five gallons of beer, you're making about 40, beer, 40 pints. You're only using, at most, if you're making a really hoppy IPA, like 
a half a pound over that entire five gallon batch. So eight ounces. So a little bit of hops goes a long ways to give you a sense here in the Northwest. I think there's somewhere on average on around 30,000 acres of hops in the entire Northwest. So there's three states, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. So between them and, you know, that's this, the U.S. is the largest producer of hops and right alongside Germany. And that's kind of enough production. We export them all over to provide a lot of countries with materials to make beer. Wow. That's, that's really interesting insight. So the hops that are produced in those three states are really, for the most part, supplying the global demand for beer production. Yeah. Wow. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you referenced varieties. I'm, I'm assuming since we have lots of different beers out there, there's probably a lot of different types of varieties or hybrids of hops. Yeah, there's there are dozens and dozens of hop varieties, as like any of these modern agricultural crops, you know, ongoing breeding efforts to improve production, flavor, disease resistance. One key aspect to mention is there's kind of two types of hops, two classifications typically like a brewer thinks about with hops. There's hops that they use for bittering the beer. And then there's hops that they use for aroma. And that's what gives you that kind of IPA classic smell that you are used to, Very what they consider hoppy. And most of the hops that are used for aroma uh, are actually grown in Oregon. Because we have a cooler climate, we can grow some varieties that have more favorable characteristics. So we predominantly grow here in Oregon aroma hops, whereas Idaho and Washington are grow more of the bittering hops, so what they call the high alpha acid hops. So what type of hops, and, and I'm very new to this crop, but I'm not new to beer, but if I were to drink your basic, I don't know, uh, Coors Light that everybody probably is coming what kind of hops would be in that type of product? Yeah, most likely, and those are some public varieties because they've been stable for so long. I know Budweiser for a long time, they really like what's a hop called the Willamette variety. So clearly developed here in the Willamette Valley. Another common one is Nugget. Those are kind of two classic ones used in sort of more mild beers. And if you're really like an IPA head and really like those craft beers with the super hoppy stuff, maybe you've heard of Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe. Those are some of the newer varieties that the craft brewers really like and are aroma hops that you might see on a can of beer where it says, oh, we use XYZ hop, and you might see the word citra or nugget or mosaic and indicates that likely you're having some beer with hops grown in Oregon. Wow. So some of the micro brewers are probably doing a pretty good job of really casually marketing those particular, uh, those breeds of hops. Yeah, there's there are, you know, there are people who are really uh, into their craft beer and can tell you the exact essence of guava and citrus and pineapple and pine resin and all these you know complex terms they use to describe the differences between the hop varieties. And I don't have that kind of a nose to be able to list off all the different <laughs> aromas I notice when I smell a beer, but I still enjoy a good IPA. Yeah. 
for sure. They're hard to beat a good IPA. Patrick, tell us a little bit about the production side. Uh, you touched on the process, which is awesome. Tell us a little bit, what, what does this crop demand? What kind of nitrogen? What are some of the challenges you referenced past a little bit and fung- funguses? What are some of the things you, in the agronomy side of things, help your customers with? Yeah, so being an herbaceous perennial, they produce quite a bit of biomass. So I'd say growers typically are shooting for around 150, 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre um, applied over the spring mostly and a little bit into the summer. A lot of them are on drip irrigation here. They'll also need your phosphorus and potassium. And then kind of the biggest disease challenges we face here in Oregon, number one would be downy mildew. So because we have often wet, cool springs, um, downy mildew is like a fungus-like organism that's splashed around by rain. And so growers here in Oregon are spraying their hops during the spring about every two weeks with a different fungicide to try to prevent downy mildew infection. If you get an infection of a, of a bind on, of downy mildew, it just will stop growing and won't go up the string. So it can have a huge impact on production. And then when you get closer into summertime, drier temperatures, we can get powdery mildew. So again, more fungicides that need to be put on uh, to protect the crop. We'll get some aphids. Spider mites are always a big challenge if it's a hot year. There are some lepidopterous pest, caterpillar type chewing insects. So that's a, there's a lot of inputs onto a, a yard of hops. Um, but you know, here at Helena, we've been working to kind of use some of our proprietary HPG products to help improve production and have had some good success with a number of different products. Yeah. One of the products that you talked about earlier was, well, Megafull. One of the products there to help out was some stress, I'm assuming. Tell us a little bit about your experience with Megafull. Yeah. So one of the things we noticed, oh, back in 2021, we had that, I don't know, maybe your listeners heard about that extreme heat dome event in the Northwest where we, here in Oregon, hit and the hop farms like 117 degrees with a strong wind. And to put that in perspective, Las Vegas' all-time record is 117 degrees. So temperatures we've never seen before. But we had just a small field. We had put some megafold on before, just knowing this heat event was coming and had a check plot and saw a dramatic difference in how the plants responded after the stress event and that the ones who didn't get the megafold kind of withered up and crisp leaves and kind of struggled the rest of the season, whereas the one with the megafold kept growing like nothing had happened. So the year after that, we we kind of ramped that up on some more production acres. And in particular, the uh, citra variety is a a very sensitive, kind of shallow-rooted variety that in that heat dome, a lot of yards kind of just wilted over and burnt, fried up. So we've started to use Megafull regularly with the Citra to help improve its uh, resilience because it's a variety that sometimes struggles with the more extremes. You know, one of the other things you talked about was some of the nitrogen demands. Uh, You mentioned something about Nucleus being a part of that, uh, uh, some of your common programs. Yeah, so the Nucleus soil-based fertilizers are readily available forms of phosphorus and potassium and they're in a liquid form and they provide a lot of benefits besides just phosphorus and potassium. They help mine the soil for what's already there in the soil and they protect 
the phosphorus and potassium you put out so they can go straight into the plant. And we've also seen improved growth through with the application of those nucleus products, OFOS and 0015. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Lots of different solutions there. I'm sure you have access to, to you know, help your hop producers produce more hops. Patrick, you know, uh, like any crop, there's always, there, we're always evolving. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and, and opportunities that uh, some of the hop growers in your area have to look forward to in 24? Yeah. So one of the big overarching challenges the hop industry is facing is an overproduction. It seems to me, or my understanding is that beer sales have been declining slightly with more people drinking either seltzers or non-alcoholic options. And so the hop demand has, has weakened a little bit. The other unique thing about hops is you can store them in a freezer for a couple of years. So I think my understanding was before we harvested this this last fall, you know, in August and September, the hop distributors had something like almost two years worth of supply on hand. So that's created some concerns within the industry. There will probably be cut back acres. And one of the, well, there's, it's kind of a double-edged sword is a lot of the, those Citra, Simcoe, Mosaic are proprietary varieties. And the, the dealers can just because they're proprietary, they can force them, the growers to yank them out. So the hope is by having a tighter supply on acreage or tighter control of acreage, that we'll be able to get through this sort of glut of hops easier. That's kind of one one hope growers have for the next couple of years. And then the other one here in Oregon is one of my growers is part of a breeding effort, a local breeding effort called West Coast Hop Breeding. And it's essentially originated from a, a grower who liked to grow organic hops and wanted to develop a variety that was resistant to downy mildew. Since we have to spray it with fungicide so much, he wanted to find a way to grow them organically. And I think they launched back in 2016, and they have a few varieties that they've developed and are starting to grow. And it was founded by you know five different farmers here in the Willamette Valley of Oregon with focus on producing hops that are unique and uniquely suited to grow here in Oregon and maintain that vibrant history because Oregon's been growing hops for well over a hundred years. So it's, it's an important industry here in Oregon. Yeah, definitely. And what a great opportunity to create a niche, uh, you know, with those five producers or so and creating some different varieties that, you know, it only takes a couple probably to catch on to really create a, an enormous demand. You touched on a little bit about, you know, hops have somewhat of a storage life potentially of around a couple of years because of freezing and that sort of thing. Certainly, I would assume, you know, you and I chatted a little bit earlier about this, but the demand for local breweries, the demand for beer in itself during COVID skyrocketed. Are your growers starting to feel some of that impact starting to slow down a little bit? Yeah, we're seeing kind of, well, the, the current narrative is COVID threw everything out of whack. You know, historically, a lot of beers on the large scale was produced in kegs for events or bars. And obviously, the first months of COVID, first year of COVID, that all kind of shut down, went away. So I know a lot of breweries shifted into producing more, you know, cans and bottles for consumer consumption. And at the time, it looked like beer product beer consumption was on an upswing. I think during those that first year of the pandemic, a lot of people were drinking at home and 
it made it look like, oh, hey, maybe we got a new wave of beer coming, beer drinkers, so let's ramp up hop production. And over the last couple of years, it seems kind of like it's settled down, if nothing else, kind of declined a little bit to pre-pandemic levels. And I think it's people substituting for things like seltzer or other other beverages. And I think that's kind of leading to some of the challenges of uh, that we're seeing with the hop supply. Yeah, I'm sure that's like a lot of things in supply chain, you know, starting to, I guess, somewhat normalize. And to your point, you know, maybe maybe the palate's shifted a little bit. I know the vodka sales and tequila seems to be taken off, it feels like, uh, at least around here. And uh, who knows? But, you know, beer's been around for thousands of years, so I'm sure it's not going to go too far, but uh, you're certainly contributing to that. What are some other things that, you know, the average uh, person listening to this podcast would like to know about hops? I think, you know, that... One of the interesting things about how hops, the story of how hops entered beer, became part of a, the brewing process, was they needed a way to provide beer that could be shipped on, you know, sailboats from England to India uh, and not spoil in the six-month journey or however long it took back in the, you know, 1700s or whenever they were they were doing that. And I think it actually happened in Germany that some folks in order to avoid taxes, they started adding different things to their beers because they were taxed on some other components of it. And so hops was one of the ones that wasn't taxed. And I think that kind of helped, oh, hey, this actually tastes pretty good. And then it turns out hops provide a natural kind of antiseptic or antibacterial quality. So they help kind of keep the beer from spoiling. They're not natural anti-spoilage organism or components. And so you may be familiar with the term IPA. Well, that stands for India Pale Ale. And the reason IPAs are so hoppy is because they needed to add a lot of hops to help them survive that beer in a cask, survive the long journey to India. So, you know, originally the hops were an important part of the storage ability of beer. And but now they've kind of with modern refrigeration, it's not as critical. They still play a role. But now there's, it's gotten more into the, the aroma characteristics. Wow, that was a great history lesson there, Patrick, on IPAs. I did not know. I never tied the two together, but a great, great history lesson there on how IPAs really evolved from shipping, likely from Germany or England, uh, beer to, uh, to India, serving as a means of storage. That's, that's awesome. So Patrick, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of different associations and groups out there or folks that are kind of interested in learning more about hops can go and explore. What are some resources where folks can go to? Yeah, well, the one for Oregon hops, uh, there's a commission, which is kind of publicly funded from a self-imposed tax of Oregon growers, and they can go to OregonHops.org to learn more about the Oregon Hop Commission and different projects they're, they're doing here in the Oregon. And then the other one, if anyone's in Texas uh, in January, this next year, 2024, the annual National Hop Convention will be taking place in Frisco, Texas, I think the second week of January. And so it's another opportunity for folks to uh, learn more about hops and meet producers, meet growers if they're interested, because that's been put on by the Oregon Hop Commission this year in Frisco, Texas. 
Well, we'll be sure to drop those links in our in the bio to, uh, here in this podcast so folks can easily access that. Learn a little bit more about hops if they happen to be down in Frisco, Texas here in January. Well, Patrick, uh, we certainly appreciate you joining us here today on FieldLink and sharing some of your insights around hop production, especially in Oregon and, and really that tri-state area, as you mentioned, producing most of the hops that cover uh, really the global demand for beer consumption. Patrick, we appreciate all that you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Jonah, you're from uh, Memphis? Yeah, Memphis. Awesome, awesome. So you were just telling me a little bit ago that you kind of got your start uh, brewing at a home brewery. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell me brewing. about that. Uh, always just been kind of interested in, in beer, the history, the science, all that. And then one year my wife gets me a, a home brew kit for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and I just dive into it. Um, you know, just fascinated. Uh, and then batch after batch after batch later, I uh, just happened to see that another local brewery is hiring and I apply and kind of picked the I, trade I get the up job. there then. And I started out, it was just very like entry level, stacking cases on a pallet. That's wow. it. And then slowly but surely learn more and more and move up from there and eventually move on come out here to to high cotton after a little while head brewer awesome so tell us a little bit about uh you know high cotton uh how what what, what's your role here today uh so i'm the head brewer um mainly deal with recipe formulation some production scheduling things like that sure so you uh Give us an idea here, and, and joining us also is Paul. Uh, Paul, want to welcome you here to uh, uh, to the FieldLink podcast. And, uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, we're excited to have you guys here join us uh, today and uh, learn a little bit more about your brewery and what you're doing here at High Cotton. And tell us a little bit about High Cotton. Uh, High Cotton's been around for about 10 years. Before here, I was working with uh, Bosco's and Ghost River. Uh, back then, that was the only craft brews in Memphis. And, um, and since then, we've come a long way. There's uh, several have opened the last couple of years. Um, we were one of the kind of front runners of that second wave. Sure. And um, in the first couple of years, we were just sending out beers to other restaurants. And then we opened a tap room. Uh, a year or two later, opened up our second room that we're in right now for our event space. Yep. And um, signed on with a distributor around that same time and, and cranking beer out. Rocking and rolling from yeah. that standpoint on. Absolutely. Give us a, before we dive into the brewery part, I really want to learn the science and some of the things that you guys are doing here that's kind of unique. But tell us a little bit about the scale of microbreweries. You know, there seem to be, as you mentioned earlier, there's a few more now here in Memphis, but you know, as you travel around the country, uh, becoming far more popular. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. I think what we enjoy most of, about working here is the smaller scale of what we do. Uh, means a little bit more work some days of the week. We've got to do four batches of one style to get a big tank filled, but we also have several smaller tanks that allow us to do creative batches, and we can sell those just here in the tap room. It gives us, you know, most brewers get in from home brewing. Sure. And have that creative process of coming up with your own recipe or trying to mimic your favorite recipe, um, add something to it or, you know, so on. But what, what allows us uh, 
to be creative is that smaller batch size that we have here. Um, sure. Some of the bigger breweries, yeah, they're putting out a bunch of numbers, but it's hard to commit to that scale and try something new right. and, and, uh, and, and feel comfortable. So you have that capability to try something new, be a little more creative, yes. and not have a whole lot of risk there financially <laughs> compared much, to some yeah, of those larger. Especially when you're selling them in the tap room as compared to the margins yeah. of distributions. So, For yeah. sure. Yep. Excellent. So, uh, guys, uh, what seems to be one of your top-selling brews here at High Cotton? Uh, overall, the, uh, the the main sellers are going to be our Mexican lager and our Scottish ale. Okay. But in our tap room, it's really kind of the newest thing is what's the best seller for the most part. Right now, we've been selling a, a whole lot of these styles we've done with Kavik, which is uh, Jonah here. It's, it's kind of his little baby that he's been playing with. Wow. We've got the uh, the bipolar pale ale and the island sunset wheat both which were done with this new kavik yeast that we brought in so we've okay. we've been really pleased with those and they've been selling selling great in the tap rooms so. okay so jonah you got to fill us in tell us a little bit at the about the bipolar kind of what you do there and what makes it really different so as paul was saying the interesting part about it is kind of this scandinavian yeast this kavik yeast okay comes from i want to say norway okay and it's just this real powerhouse of a yeast. It's very resilient, very clean. It can withstand just great temperature, and so it really produces very quickly. Just kind of fun to explore how that how that actually comes out and comes across. And one of the ones mentioned, the bipolar, that was kind of like the, the name and idea existed before the recipe. Okay. Uh, it was this idea of taking this yeast from the northern hemisphere and pair it with a single type of hop from the southern hemisphere okay and so we went with uh this uh variety of hop from new zealand so we got this scandinavian viking yeast and this new zealand hop and they surprisingly just paired great together wow Wow, and that's really unique, and that's the neat thing about a microbrewery like you guys have. You have the opportunity to experience different hops and different yeasts, as you mentioned, and I assume different grains as well that could, could partner with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Grains so, all over the world. Talk to us a little bit about your hop side of your business. Uh, where do you gain a lot of your hops? Where do they come from? Where do you source them? And what part of the country are they grown? Uh, a lot of the hops we get from the Oregon area. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a grower there that we source a lot of different varieties from, but we also branch out, get some more uh, noble German, very classic hops okay. uh, grown in Germany. Just mentioning the, the New Zealand, we can get access to some Australian hops as well. There's a hop from Japan, Sirachi Ace, that we use quite wow. a bit, kind of from all over the world. And that's, you know, this small scale makes it easy to be creative and, and source. Yeah. It, and it really kind of adds to the term craft, right? You're, you're really crafting something very unique. It's not a mass production like you have some some of the big name brand breweries. Yeah. Uh, not There's nothing wrong with that, but boy, this is more of the art and science coming together, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the bigger breweries are gonna gonna have to contract out the quantities and the amounts that they need for these styles to, to keep up throughout the year, uh, which we do for a couple of our big sellers, but uh, being a smaller one, we kind of get what we call spot hops, where you know growers, suppliers will have certain amount of, of this come about that's not already 
allocated to, uh, to other people and we can uh, we can pick up on those and you know we can do an entire batch off of a bag of those as compared to having to line up anything for long term so it gives us a lot of flexibility wow. you know we, we try to bring in try to stay true to style on some some beers you know so for german style beers we're going to try to get some german hops you know the scottish ale we're using you know traditional fuggles and sterling hops that are true to the style and uh but then we're able to get creative with the, the Kavik beers we've been doing as well as some of our ipas where we can just mix and match what we can get from whoever, different sources you know, around the world kind of really right? play around yeah so tell us a little bit about some of the other grains, some of the barleys that you access. Uh, where do you access predominantly most of your barley? Most of our barleys come in from the Midwest in America, um, Wisconsin, Montana, those growing areas. Uh, most time we're going to use a RAR malting company for some for our base grains, but uh, we really like to bring in some some specialty malts to fill in the gaps there. Okay. And, uh, you know kilned malts uh we, we like the amber malts and the caramel malts and uh we, we even we just brewed a doppelbach where we got a malt that's a smoked malt smoked in uh is it beechwood, beechwood? i believe uh, um, it's from a, a german monster yeah in, uh, wow yeah, so, bomberg germany i want to say yeah. excellent and so we'll, we'll brew our german lineup for oktoberfest beers we'll rely heavily on those suppliers and get some true german malts and uh and try to it's fun to create a beer that from start to finish you're, you're sourcing the ingredients from the origin of that beer style as well you wow. know not just there, there's always alternatives you can kind of mix and match with your grain but most people can tell a difference at the end of the day when it's truly sourced from where it should be and yeah well that's really neat to see how you can source different pieces i guess or gift different recipes, if you will, ingredients from around the world to best fit your needs here. And, you know, we just talked uh, also on this podcast, uh, some growers out in, in Oregon that are coming up with different hops and coming up with different varieties. And it's really a, a escalating business, really, for them. It, it really is. And it's a little confusing for some of us brewers because uh, yeah. it's, it's turned into a lab science almost with some of these hop brewers where they're crossbreeding all sorts of stuff uh you know when i started brewing it was you know you had hops at the beginning of the boil for bitterness at the end of the boil for aroma and somewhere in the middle for flavor and now the things they're able to do with hops it's just it's free for all now wow. i mean it's uh they you know isolating and extracting compounds to to get just this or just that out of certain varieties they're also much more efficient uh resistant to mold pests you know age a whole lot better so you have the ability to store them uh, and feel comfortable getting some varieties that you know you had to get them super fresh or else fade you know, off a little bit yeah you know, they've done it they've it's come a long way and it's uh you know I imagine there's people in a white lab coat that are sitting there kind of tending to us you know on, on our checking hop. it out yeah, yeah. It's, well, it is amazing to see, you know, how um, even in the hops business, the hops industry, talking to some of the growers and some of our representatives in that area, how, how uh, you know, local those those growers really are and how hands-on they are in trying to find and crossbreed a, a product or create a hop that's going to, you know, fit a specific need. It's really interesting market. Yeah, there's been uh, in the past where we've gotten stuff that we've tried out and it was named experimental hop number 
XXX, you know, and, sure. and now those have got a name to them and are mass produced and are grown and they've, you know, dedicated a lot of acreage to them uh, after letting other breweries try out some, some crossbreed, you know, ex experiment that, uh, you know, it's, I, I kind of find that interesting where it's, you know. What kind of trends are you guys seeing, you know, with your customers? What are they asking for? It sounds like you're, you've got a kind of a boutique of different flavors, different you know, tastes, palettes out there for consumers. Uh, what, what's working? What now? Uh, trends are always something hard to stay on top of. They kind of come and go pretty quick. There's always a new trend in in the IPA world coming around, and we just try to figure out what that is. Um, the juicy, hazy, juicy, hazy, not so bitter. Not IPAs so bitter. Were a, you know, were a big thing for a while, and yep. now people want their traditional IPA, you know, with it, back to what we're go back to, to go back to yeah. something with a little punch, a little bit of bitterness and sure. Yeah. Session beers, uh, low calorie, low alcohol content were a big, big phase as are non-alcoholic beers, which right. we haven't dabbled in yet, but it, people are, you know, finding out that they, they like the flavors, but maybe don't want to drink so much, you don't know. Want the alcohol yeah. or don't yeah. want yeah. the yeah. calories That's, or carbs or what have you. Yeah. And then yeah. there's then you have your people that want the the non percenters, you know, as well. So go, it's, go hard. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Everyone is out there. We see all kinds. There's someone that wants a double IPA. There's someone that wants an imperial stout. There's someone that wants just a nice, clean, crisp Bilsner. Uh, they all all come in. Everyone's unique and different. So talk to me a little bit about distribution at High Cotton. Uh, I know you're local here in Memphis, and you're producing, you know, for you know folks to come into the tap room here, which is awesome, by the way, as I'm having one of my your high 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 hippovisen. All right, yeah, I'm kind of a traditionalist, I guess. So, <laughs> um, but it's awesome. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, your marketplace, though, t uh, in terms of distribution. Well, right now, we're, uh, I'd say about 75% of our production goes through the distribution chain. Okay. Um, we are, and about 90% of that is Shelby County only. Um, Memphis is unique in that, you know, it's got the entire city in one county. Uh, if you were to go to Nashville or to Little Rock, you'd split that amongst two or three counties. So. Okay. What, what that's unique though is that when we did first start, uh, self-distribution was limited to the county that you produce your product in. Okay. So it allowed us to get our feet wet, to create styles, to create a market for our product and do a, a fair amount of distribution ourselves. Uh, but as most small breweries do, you outgrow that it, it, we have to store the beer, you have to have a sales force, you have, have to have a delivery team, you know, all the equipment and everything necessary, and also maintain your lines, keep those clean. Uh, so you get to a certain point where you need that assistance and that's kind of when you typically tie on with a di distributor. Uh, here in Memphis, we're with Eagle Distribution who, who handles most of the craft market in Memphis. Uh, and they've been great to us, we've, we've had, uh, growth pretty much every year up until COVID obviously, but uh, right. that uh, that distribution during COVID kind of changed a lot for us. There was, we had a lot of draft up until a certain point and when COVID hit, it was a lot about packaged product that you could get at the store because people weren't going to bars and restaurants as much. And so to stay relevant, we created more and more styles that we would put into cans and, and send it out in a okay. package. So. 
Uh, you know, right now we're we're sending out close to ten styles a year in in cans. Now we'll have our three year round, and then four seasonal, and then four high hop series, uh, and occasionally throw in another one here too. You know, so it's that's that's really been our driving factor of our distribution over the last couple of years has been that the trend of having more styles in packaged product. But for every beer we brew like that, we also have that available on draft in the tap room as well. So it's here down uh, in downtown area, Memphis, you absolutely. guys are really close to sun studios, you know, for our listeners across the country and around the world. Elvis <laughs> week. Yeah. We're one, one block away. Uh, yeah, where, where it all began, where Elvis and uh, Johnny Cash recorded all their songs. You're just a block or so away from Sun Studio, so that's pretty cool. Guys, uh, so if, if there's listeners out there outside of Shelby County, Tennessee, uh, do they have the ability to access your beer, or do they got to make their way to Memphis? Got to make their way to Memphis. We, we have branched out, and uh, Memphis is in a tri-state area that, that kind of dips into Mississippi and Arkansas. So we, we do have uh, relationships with the distributors that are in the South Haven, North Mississippi area, as well as the, the West Memphis uh, in Arkansas. But uh, yeah, for the most part, you got to come here. Hey, that's all right. Uh, our listeners can make their way to Memphis and uh, maybe uh, check out Sun Studios and swing on down to High Cotton and check out some of this awesome beer. and uh, Some barbecue. and little barbecue, get it all, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, guys, I want to thank you both for joining us here today on the FieldLink podcast and sharing kind of the insider look of a microbrew here in Memphis. And it's really neat to see how some of the products that are grown, uh, that our customers are growing in Oregon and Montana and Wisconsin, as you mentioned, and how they all kind of make their way to microbreweries like yours, like High Cotton here in Memphis, Tennessee for consumers. So thanks for joining us today, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beer, Barley, and Hops. We encourage you to sip wisely and be sure to thank the farmers, agronomists, and brewers that work hard to make your favorite flavor of beer. Be sure to subscribe and download the FieldLink podcast wherever you get your podcasts.